Rock and roll. It's your daily dose of all things Gamecocks on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Here's J.C. Sherbert. Welcome in to the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. I'm J.C. Sherbert, May the 27th, a Thursday. Here with you, heading into the Memorial Day weekend. Got some things to cover real quick. Probably be the last show before next week when things really get to heat up. Um, NCAA baseball tournament, recruiting. Players can come on campus. We've been beating that drum for a while. <laughs> and uh, if you're in my position and you do my job, you know, and I've done it my whole career. Don't get out as much as I used to, obviously, but uh, it's a killer when you don't have players visiting and uh, you don't get that in-person deal uh, with coaches and, and analysts and whoever else. You don't get to see the guys perform. It's hard to evaluate. It's hard to kind of figure out recruitment. Um, there was a stat, first 10 days of May last year, 130 players committed. Uh, compared to like 27 this year across the country. And uh, that bothered me a little bit, just because I, I'm always of the opinion that, that players need to make the best decisions for them when it comes to recruiting. And uh, I don't care where they go. If it's Clemson, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Oregon, wherever, you know, they need to make the decision that's right for them. And it, it's virtually impossible, I think, to do that and I've compared it before to getting on an online dating site and getting married based on your messages back and forth uh, without an in-person <laughs> uh, deal. And so I thought that was very unfortunate. I, I guess the pandemic, you know, caused that. I, I thought that at certain times, maybe there could have been some exceptions made. Um, but uh, I think when you're trying to police that many schools on that many levels with so many different policies from state to state and community to community, if you're the NCAA, it's probably best just to make a blanket declaration. Uh, but getting guys back on campus is going to be important uh, everywhere in the country. Uh, and as of next Tuesday, that's going to happen. So lots of excitement there. Uh, just to give you the rundown, and I've mentioned this before, obviously it's not something that you don't know. The first official visits are coming in next week. Uh uh, or not the, not next week, I'm sorry, the next week on the next Monday. Uh, Ramon Brown, four-star running back from Midlothian, Virginia, Manchester High School, and Felix Hickson, defensive lineman from Jackson, Georgia, will be in that next Monday, uh, so a week from Monday. Uh, but as of June 1st, they're going to have the guys on campus for camps and unofficial visits and, and things like that, um, and uh, couldn't get here soon enough. Uh, as far as everybody's concerned across the country. Uh, and South Carolina has a really good group, a really good group uh, already scheduled and and ready to roll here. Lots of kids from Florida, kids from up and down the East Coast, uh, some highly rated guys, uh, two of the commit, three of the commitments, Banks, Maines, and Braden Davis, scheduled to be in during the month of June for the official. So it, it's going to be a uh, <clears throat> an interesting month recruiting-wise, so be sure to – Stay tuned to us right here on Inside the Gamecocks podcast. And also uh, get on the bigspur.com. You can join today for a dollar. So go over there and, and check out that special. Um, get you through to the recruiting period on end of the season. Uh, and we have great coverage of everything. Already got, got some good stories up there, too. I have my 
crystal ball insider for all of my predictions I made for the players that are coming in for visits later in June. I did uh, the other one on May 18th for the first initial ones. Um, some guys I couldn't make a, a decision on. I, uh, <clears throat> you know, you look at a guy like Dominic James, the four-star defensive tackle out of IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida. I did not put a prediction in for him because I hear South Carolina's in really good shape. Really, really good shape. And they feel good about it. Jimmy Lindsay's done a good job. But, you know, he's at IMG, and South Carolina's never gotten a guy out of there. Uh, and the other schools in the mix are Ohio State and LSU. Ohio State in particular really likes him. And, and so, you know, it's just kind of hard to, 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 to square those two, you know, ideas of information, I guess, or, or, or strains of information to make an intelligent pick. But, you know, Carolina's got some players coming in, man. If they can land a handful of these guys over the summer, uh, you know, the recruiting class is really going to start to take shape. Uh, and so there's a reason for excitement. Lots of guys at positions of need. Lots of defensive backs. Six defensive backs scheduled. Uh, actually, eight if you include the guys that are listed athlete like Chris Graves and Sam McCall. Uh, I'm assuming Sam McCall, he's the five-star athlete committed to FSU from Lakeland, Florida, that's going to visit Carolina with his teammates. I'm assuming he's a defensive back. Uh, Torian Gray's recruiting him. I think he's a, a guy that could step in at safety and start right away uh, at South Carolina um, if he chooses to flip or, or do whatever. Keep in mind, committed to FSU right now. But, uh, you know, lots of guys there. Um, uh, four receivers scheduled to come in. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's good stuff. Those are the positions that you circle. Uh, as far as the Gamecocks go. So we'll see sort of what happens. Um, did a little piece today on the message board, did some research like I love to do. Um, someone, you know, had put, I wrote an article called Burning Questions, and I had mentioned that, you know, we talk about how Shane Beamer and the new staff, they've sort of really worked hard to change. And culture is a word that, gets thrown around a lot in college football. So I'm not going to change. I'm going to say mental direction. Um, you know, I don't think that, you know, you could say the culture was broken because of all the losses and, and historical losses in some ways. That, that A&M loss at home, I didn't realize this. That's the worst home loss in the SEC South Carolina's had since 1995 when Spurrier and the Gators came up and beat the Gamecocks. Um, 63 to 7, 56 points. It was 45 point loss to AM this past year. So I didn't really think about that. But, uh, you know, when you go through the times like that, you know, it, it, obviously something is askew because they weren't playing together as a team, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I, I don't think, you know, I, I think that the culture under Muschamp, when you talk to anybody there, though, there, there were some positive things about the culture. It wasn't uh, a situation where it was, you know, completely broken in the way that you would think. So I used the analogy, I used the comparison to Lou Holtz's first year. Uh, obviously that one in 10 season under Brad Scott at the end ended poorly. It was a divided locker room. Uh, there were all kinds of things going on. Lou inherited that situation. I, I don't think Lou was universally embraced when he got there, you know, ran some guys off. Uh, then the 0 and 11 season happened with injuries and trying to run an offense from 1989 instead of 1999. Uh, you know, and then the core, I mean, you know, you, you look, you started Kevin Sides, Kyle Crabb, Mikhail Goodman that year when Petty was hurt. That was tough. And so, 
you know, you look back at that year and how did Lou fix it? Um, because it was essentially the same players w- without the injuries. Uh, and they added a few guys here and there. I mean, Corey Alexander was a guy they added in. They they moved Neesmith to safety and Brewer to receiver and, and sort of tinkered with the roster and ran Skip's offense instead of Lou's. And, and, and all those were X's and O's things that really helped that team. You know, plus Charlie Strong was a – rising star defensive coordinator and the defense played really, really good despite losing John Abraham from the, the previous team. But, uh, you know, you look back at it and, and Lou talks about that year and, and how he, you know, got him the team to start playing together. And it was a bunch of bonding, you know, the players, he, he realized the players didn't trust each other or like each other, or hang out with each other and all that. And so that bonding really helped that turnaround. I mean, I've talked to people that were on that team. Um, the bonding really helped. I, I don't know that this group dislikes each other or doesn't trust each other or whatever. I think to a certain extent, maybe they didn't know each other that well. Um, I think to a certain extent, the losses sort of piled up and everybody's just kind of shoulder slumped and down and beat down and not confident. And so I was talking about that and I said, well, here's, here's what happened with Lou. And then you talk about, you know, that changing and I was like Beamer, you know, came in and recognized that as a problem from the beginning because it was and said, you know, Hey, look, you know, you, you got to get this thing back positive, a lot of positive reinforcement, a lot of talk about loving your teammates, a lot of talk about, you know, what it means to be a team and all that good stuff. Because, you know, the, the signs last year on the field were, you know, collection of individuals. That's why I've never said the talent level was that down. I, I you know, it was the talent level, is the talent level SEC championship worthy? No. Uh, are there a lot of questions and holes on the roster? Yes. Were there last year? Sure. But it, it wasn't a the disaster that was put on the field during the games. Uh, and then by the end, the team was so beat up and, and a shell of itself that it, you know, that Kentucky game, you know, had it happened earlier in the year, I don't know that it would have been a blowout like that. Um but, you know, by that time, you're starting Gilbert Edmond, an outside linebacker, as a true freshman and things like that. I mean, it, it just, you know, everybody's going to go up and down the field on you at that point. But um, so I mentioned that, and I mentioned Lou, and then and one of our listeners and, and posters on the board said, what if Shane pulls a Lou his first season and goes 0-11 or, or has a bad year, so to speak? Uh, and, and sort of that – so that was – you know, that, that caused a lot of discussion. First and foremost, you remember that first Lou Holtz team, the, the out-of-conference games, you know, there were no there were no gimmies. First of all, there's only 11 games. So there, wasn't, there, were, there were only three out-of-conference. At NC State was one. East Carolina at home was the other. And if you remember, East Carolina came in and beat the Gamecocks 21-3. to The offense just wasn't going anywhere. In, in, that was the home opener, I think for Lou. And then after that, where are the wins coming from? They almost beat Vandy. It was an 11 to 10 Vanderbilt win. Um, but none of the other ones were close. Clemson was relatively close at the end of the year, but uh, there just weren't that many opportunities uh, for the Gamecocks to win. You know, this year you, you have Eastern Illinois, East Carolina and Troy. Uh, and not saying that Troy and East Carolina aren't capable of beating the Gamecocks. So, I mean, I just, I don't think there's any chance they go winless. You know, but if you throw a two and ten up there, you know, what do you think? Uh, that that's not uh, that would be worse, you know, because last last year's two and eight is is a bit deceiving in the sense that 
it was a, an all SEC schedule. So most of the time, historically, Carolina goes two and six in the league. They're looking anywhere from four, four to five overall wins, maybe three. Um, but you know, two and eight was the final result because it was you know a bunch of SEC games. Uh, and so you look back on it, and uh, not all two and eights are created equal. Uh, just like Arkansas last year, their three and seven was actually really good. <laughs> so, you know, you're not really coming from the doldrums right now, even though the record is ugly. Uh, so, so I think I think the chances of going winless are small. But you know, what if what if disaster happens? There's a bunch of injuries like Lou had, and and it's like that. So that that was the point. And people were like, well, most people said, well, they get a pass. It's the first year or whatever. You know, you don't turn around and make a change after one year um i've seen teams do it you know uh, southern miss did it with ellis johnson he went 0 and 12 but i just don't think there's a chance that happens at carolina this year but it brought up a good point so long story short i started researching first year head coach first time head coaches in their first year in the sec and it was fascinating what i found you know that there wasn't a lot you know, and, and these are guys, keep in mind, that have never been head coaches before that take an SEC head coaching job. So uh, it's, 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 you know, guys that not, you know, not guys that were at a smaller school that took over at, a, at an SEC program or, or whatever, or like a Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban or, or higher like that. These are guys, you know, first time head coaches in the, and, and then they get handed the keys to an SEC program. And I, I found it fascinating. The only schools that haven't hired a guy with no head coaching experience since South Carolina has been in the league, and that was 1992, so it's been 30 years, uh, been Texas A&M, LSU, and Auburn. All of those schools have hired guys with head coaching experience. Now, Auburn hired Gus Malzahn after one year of head coaching experience. It was very limited, uh, and he – had the biggest improvement, I think, in the history of college football, going from winless in the SEC to uh, a play away from winning a national title and winning the SEC and all that good stuff. That was a tremendous turnaround. And, and like Shane Beamer, he kind of was bouncing back to a place that, you know, he was at. It was only one year he was gone, but he was back and did a good job. Hugh Freeze had a year at Arkansas State just like Gus Malzahn did, and he had two at a small school named Lambeth. Came back to came back to Ole Miss, took that job. They went from two and ten to seven and six. You know, so there are some limited, some guys out there that had limited experience. Um, Eli Drinkwitz, one year at App State, bounces to Missouri immediately. They got better. Five SEC wins last year was no joke. Um, and so, what does that mean for Beamer? So, so let's look. Let's look at the the grand scheme of things. So, Mike Debose, Alabama, was a guy that. Took over with no coaching experience, went four and seven, won six less games than they did before. So did Mike Shula, took over a 10 and three team, went four and seven. Those guys had no coaching experience, got thrown into Bama. And those two guys had had some good years, but ultimately that didn't work out. You know, Sam Pittman took Arkansas from two to three wins, but again, that's the SEC schedule. Probably would have been much more of an improvement had they got to play some cupcakes. Ron Zook, Will Muschamp at Florida were both in the minus, minus two for Zook, minus one for Will Muschamp with the Gators. Uh, Georgia, Mark Rick was a push, and he went eight and four after Donovan went eight and four. 
Kirby Smart was a minus two. He went uh, eight and five after they had gone 10 and three the year before. Now, a reminder, in their second year, Mark Rick and Kirby Smart both won the SEC at Georgia. So Georgia's had, you know, 20 years now of guys on their first head coaching job that have done pretty well. Uh, Kentucky's hired three guys, first-time head coaches. Guy Morris uh, followed up a Hal Mummy 2-9 and nine with uh, his own 2-9. and nine. Joker Phillips got promoted and took over for Rich Brooks and went 6-7. and seven. That was a minus one. Mark Stoops took over a 2-10 team and went 2-10 uh, at Kentucky. Uh, and that was, a, that was a tough situation for them. Barry Odom took over at Missouri and went minus one. Tommy Tuberville at Ole Miss uh, improved the Rebels by two. David Cutcliffe took over for Tuberville and improved them by one, went eight and four. Ed Orgeron took over for Cutcliffe, lost one one more uh, game, or one, one, one less, minus one. Matt Luke took over for you, Freeze, plus one, went six and six from five and seven. Sylvester Croom, plus one, three and eight from two and ten at Jackie Sherrill. Dan Mullen had the toughest schedule in the country at Mississippi State when he took over and scratched out five wins for a plus one. So here's where it gets interesting. This is the third best improvement in their first year, uh, the last 30 years, um, for a first-time head coach at a new school, at an SEC school, Brad Scott. Took Carolina from four and seven to seven and five, won the first bowl game in school history, his first year as a head coach. Now we all know how that ended. And that was ironically also the last time South Carolina hired a guy with no head coaching experience. The, South Carolina historically has not done that. You know, since Paul Dietzel, uh, the two that Richard Bell and Brad Scott have been the two they've hired with no head coaching experience. Bell was kind of an interim deal, lasted one year. Jeremy Pruitt, plus one at Tennessee, five and seven, but he did snap a long losing streak in the SEC. I think he won two, two SEC games. Uh, the two biggest improvements were Jerry DiNardo at Vandy when he took over as, as a plus four, went from one and ten to five and six. And then James Franklin was a plus four, went from two and ten to six and seven and got them to a bowl his first year. That's, uh, you know, Franklin's sort of an interesting deal in the sense that He's a positive energy guy. I know some people don't like him, and, and I'm not talking about whatever happened off the field at Vandy and, you know, whatever. Uh, but, you know, when he, that first year of Vandy, I remember he went in there and there was just a lot of positive energy and stuff like that. And that, that kind of – Bobby Johnson had recruited rel- relatively well um, for Vandy and uh, ended up winning six, then nine, then nine before taking Penn State. Uh, Derek Mason – Though he took over and uh, tried to kind of put a square peg in a round hole with a lot of Franklin's players, and he was a minus six like those guys at Bama. Um, you know, so so you look at it like that, and it, it's a situation where, uh, you know, because of the all-SEC schedule last year and the two-and-eight record, you know, it's not – you know, you go from five and seven to seven and five in, in a normal transition, everybody's happy, but that's still not – you know, I mean, Steve Spurrier improved on Lou Holtz's record year over year by one game. Now, Spurrier, granted, beat Tennessee and Florida and all that good stuff. But still, six and five one year, seven and five the next. But it's, it's you know, there's a chance numerically 
you know, for Beamer to come in and have a historically good year. And there is precedent at South Carolina for that. Um, so all this stuff's kind of fascinating, I think, when you look at it. And, you know, the first-time head coaches. Now, some people say, well, first-time head coaches in the SEC don't typically turn out well. And, look, they're not – it's not universal. Most of these guys have failed, you know, so, and some of these guys too, you have to keep in mind were in internal promotions. Uh, you know, Guy Morris, I believe was an internal promotion. Maybe not. Um, but you look back, uh, Mike DeBose was an internal promotion at Alabama, Joker Phillips at Kentucky, Barry Odom at Missouri, Matt Luke at Ole Miss, an internal promotion. Um, you know, and th- those guys obviously didn't work out. But you also have some guys on this list that are very accomplished head coaches. Mark Rick, Kirby Smart, uh, Mark Stoops, Tommy Tuberville, David Cutcliffe, Ed Orgeron, Dan Mullen, James Franklin. Uh, Jerry DiNardo, uh actually got the LSU job after what he did at Vandy. Obviously, that didn't work out. It didn't work out at Indiana later. But, you know, there's some guys like that, you know. But then there's also some guys like Zook and Muschamp that got other chances after Florida and, and did not succeed. Um, Guy Morrison ended up going to Baylor uh, and kind of flaming out out there. Um, obviously, Tuberville ended up getting Auburn and have a great success there, but I mentioned him. You know, Kroom never got another job. Uh, Brad Scott never got another job as far as head coaching goes. Uh, Jeremy Pruitt, who knows where he's going to end up, but I'd be surprised uh, if it's anytime soon where he gets a head coaching job. I mean, it, it, I could see a scenario with him being from Alabama and all that. If let's say Bill Clark at UAB got a gig, him getting something like that, but I, I just don't know. And then Derek Mason obviously failed and he's the uh, uh, DC at Auburn now. So, you know, a lot of these guys have had it rough, but a lot of them, a lot of them have gone on to historically good runs at various places so what does that mean for Shane Beamer all it means is the better the Gamecocks do this year the more potentially historic it's going to be uh because it's not as if a lot of guys with you know no head coaching experience have walked in and and improved by you know like I said the max was four games both those guys were at Vandy and then Brad Scott comes in third with three you know some went backward big big time you know, and a lot of times it always depends on obviously the situation you're in. Who are you playing? What's the schedule look like? What's the injury situation? You know, all that good stuff. But um, I, and I do think it's promising because the vast majority of, of some of these guys, too, their second years ended up being really, really good. Like Will Muschamp and Kirby Smart, second year at Georgia and Florida, respectively. Wow. You know, Muschamp won 11-2. and two. That was his best year as a head coach. Uh, Kirby Smart played for a national championship. Uh, you know, you kind of look up and down the list, and, and year year twos end up being a lot better. As I mentioned earlier, Franklin went to nine wins. Uh, you know, Jeremy Pruitt went to eight and five and went to a bowl, although year two started poorly. <laughs> that was his best year, too. So, some of these guys in year two, they really sort of sort of start to turn it and all that good stuff. But anyway, I wanted to look at that. John Del Bianco on the Big Spur has a nice article uh, quoting Shane Beamer about the linebacker position, which is a position that 
I go back and forth about being really concerned about. Um, was not concerned midway through the spring. Watched the spring game. Got concerned again. Uh, I think these guys need to get help healthy. I, I think they have to. You know, the injury situation at this position is killing it right now. Um, or, or would kill it if we were in season. Uh, and I mentioned who all was doing the playing at the end of last year at this spot. And it was relayed to me toward the final days of last year that, look, man, the, the linebacker situation is awful, uh, you know, with who they have to trot out there. There's just not, there's, there's not a lot of guys, you know, bottom line. Uh, but Beamer said linebacker is going to be similar to receiver as far as who's going to step up. Uh, he mentioned uh, Mo Kaba and Sherrod Green being banged up. And keep in mind, you only have two on the field at once. But, you know, a guy like Jamar Brown, you know, is he going to be on the field as a nickel kind of guy or how are you going to use him? I, I think this. I, I think Mo Kaba and Debo Williams taking a step forward for this group would be huge. Uh, I, I would like to say that Bam Scott, who's coming in, uh, who was the number two outside linebacker in junior college this past year, uh, is a big answer or savior, and I hope he is. But a lot of times – and, look, you've had guys at linebacker for JUCO step in uh, and play pretty well uh, over the years at times. You know, we all remember Jasper Brinkley. He was a JUCO guy that came in and was really good. Uh, even the uh, the SEC East Championship years, that, that defense wasn't super – but you did have Tony Strauder and Josh Dickerson that got in there and and, and gave them reps and tried really hard. They were just tough guys that, that went in there and tackled and, and played well. Um, so I'd like to say that, but, you know, it's tough to rely on a JUCO guy that doesn't have spring practice and is just kind of coming in, you know. And, and so hopefully, I mean, I hope Bam Scott's all world, but, but I, I wouldn't – I wouldn't count on him. I love Colby Fields, the the guy coming in from Louisiana that's already there uh, at linebacker, uh, you know, but you don't want to count on him. And at the same time, I don't know that it's ideal to have Damani Staley and Brad Johnson as your starters. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think green is a capable inside backer. I, I really do. I think that uh, Mokaba is obviously a guy that was highly rated as a recruit. You know, he's just got to get reps, and, and, and he's got to emerge. You know, he's got a ways to go. He hadn't, he hadn't played a lot of football. You know, he got some uh, – he got forced into action last year, and that's going to be a good thing. It's going to help him. But he, he's got to continue to come on, especially with the new scheme uh, and all that. Uh, you know, and, and look, I, I'm going to throw a wild card out here. I'm, I'm going to throw something at you. Um, Spencer Easton Riddle is coming back. And – you know, he was hurt towards ACL uh, twice. So, so maybe, you know, we'll see how well Spencer's moving around. I know this. I know he's productive when he's out there at linebacker. He plays his assignment. I know he's a heck of a special teams player, so it'll be good to get him back even at that uh, at that part. But uh, look out for him if things go south. I, Rosendo Lewis has been a, a guy since he was a recruit I've been high on. He hadn't played any ball, four games in two seasons, hasn't started a game, was third team in the uh, in the spring game, did not look like a guy that had played in a while. Um, so he's got work to do. I still 
hopefully the talent's there. But, you know, he's kind of like Ortre Smith in the sense that, you know, he's just been out for so long. I mean, can, can he make it back? Ortre Smith being the receiver. You know, so we'll see. But I thought it was an interesting uh, interesting topic as far as fierce – you know, Beamer said there'll be fierce competition. He's like, coming out, I don't know who our top two are. That'll be a good competition to watch. And um, he's right. And and I think that, you know, the, the key is for some of these guys just to get healthy uh, because this position looks like a mash unit right now. Baseball team went out in Hoover again, nine to three to Alabama. Tough loss there. Bama. I guess they were fighting for their NCAA tournament lives. I guess I don't know. I, you know, South Carolina in Hoover over the years, they they just you know since '04 when they won it, they don't really they don't really do much when it comes to the SEC baseball tournament historically. And, and judging by kind of. You know, some of the – I don't know. You know, I, I guess Kingston, Mark Kingston, the head coach, was like, well, we tried this. It didn't work out. Let's just move forward to next week. I think that's the right approach to take. Uh, you can question as to whether or not, you know, this is going to cost the Gamecocks to host. I will say Baseball America has the Gamecocks hosting, but as a two seed. Uh, and I think Old Dominion may be the number one that they had. Maybe it's another one. Uh, but as, you know, two seed coming to Columbia, that, that, would, that would be okay, depending on who the super regional matchup was. Baseball America had an Arizona, uh, which is not too bad. I, I just I, I think you want to avoid Arkansas, Vanderbilt, Florida, the S- Mississippi State, the SEC teams, uh, if you're looking at that. But, um, yeah, just disappointing thing. I, think. I mean, so they're going to announce the host sites on Sunday and then the field on Monday, Labor uh, Memorial Day. We'll see what happens there. I'm going to say this about the baseball team. Number one, I I think you have to keep in mind with South Carolina baseball, and and some, it's been a while. I mean, you know, the Gamecocks, I guess, they've been to two super regional, three super regionals uh, since their last trip to Omaha in 2012. Lost all three of them. Uh, You've had seasons where, you know, three seasons where no, there was no NCAA tournament. Um, and, you know, that, that's – you kind of start to forget about the seasons past. You know, you're just kind of looking at the results and, and all that good stuff. And I think some younger people may not, you know, they're just now getting into baseball, may not realize that, you know, that this program is really based on how you do in the, in the postseason. That's South Carolina baseball. And, you know, I've said this before, the good thing under Ray Tanner was you go through the seasons, whether they got out in the Supers or the, the, the regionals or Omaha or wherever, with few exceptions, maybe in the 09 when they lost up at East Carolina, maybe the, and obviously the upset to Louisiana Lafayette in 2000, that was 21 years ago. But almost without exception, you left the season and you went, well, these guys battled to their final out. They went as far as they could go and gave it their all. And, you know, there were some what-ifs, as there always are in baseball. But, you know, most of the time, if you put the Gamecocks out, you think about the teams that put Carolina out over the years, they they were playing at a high level. I mean, uh, you know, Gamecocks took them to the wire. And Gamecocks put out some teams that were better than they were too along the way. 
So under Tanner, you always felt that way. The chink in the armor started happening. Uh, even the first, even Holbrook's first year, 2013, Carolina goes to Chapel Hill in the longest super regional ever because of all the rain delays. I think John Whittle was in Chapel Hill for eight days and takes a great North Carolina team all the way down to the wire. Ended up coming up short, not going back to Omaha, but you felt like, hey, they battled. 2014 is when things started going bad. Maryland comes to town for a regional at Founders Park, Carolina Stadium at the time, and wins. And South Carolina hadn't lost their regional at home. Huh? Very interesting. In a lot, of, I think I think it's been since the '80s since Carolina lost a regional at home. And then two years later, you, you get to the Supers against Supers at home, Oklahoma State. Um, I think Carolina got almost shut out both times, swept in the Supers at home. And, and, and that's when things start to kind of erode. Um, you know, you went from being the, the toughest home field in college baseball, arguably, when you look at how tough it was for teams to come in. And really even get a win in a regional or super regional situation. Uh, and, and there's losses. That's disappointing. And then you have a seasons, uh, another season where you don't go. Uh, and then Holbrook gets fired. And then you have, you know, a first year with Kingston that looked bleak. And then all of a sudden they get to the Supers and, you know, it kind of felt like Carolina baseball again. That was a year where you thought, well, you know, they, they, they battled to their final out against a great Arkansas team. Well, in 2018 happens, you win eight games in the SEC, historically bad. That sucked. And then 19, the, the, or, oh, I'm sorry, I'm probably behind myself. I'm probably in front of myself right now. 19 was historically bad. 18 was the Supers. 17 was a year without that. So 19, Supers. Uh, or 19 was historically bad. Blah. I should have written this down. 2020, you know, canceled before it even got started. 12 and 4 record, not a great start with series losses to Northwestern and Clemson. Um, and then, you know, there's this year where it's a historically great year in the SEC. And South Carolina is, you know, kind of a notch behind the best. And they've played all the best. And that's another thing, too. South Carolina. You you replace Mississippi State, Ole Miss, and Arkansas with Alabama, Auburn, and Texas A and M, and I think Carolina goes instead of two and seven against those teams. I think they're seven and two, uh, and you're probably looking at twenty one SEC wins and a and a division title. Just to be honest with you, I mean that's uh, you know, and, and then you 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 go you do that and you replace the Texas series with three cup with a cupcake series. And you're probably like 40-plus wins and 13 losses and a national seed. Uh, so, you know, sometimes it's who you play, too. And and I, and I think this year, uh, you know, we'll see what happens in the postseason. Hopefully, if you're the Gamecocks, you, you, the team maximizes. They go as far as they can. And uh, depending on who they're playing, you don't know, we don't know that right now. But go as far as you can. And then um, – I'll tell you this, if if I'm concerned, I'm not really all that concerned so much about this year's team because I think this season has been a success. Uh, Gamecocks are back in the postseason. 
It was a tough year in the SEC. It was a winning record for Carolina in the SEC. Kingston has now posted in, uh, you know, he's only had, he's had four CBL. He's only had three SEC seasons, uh, despite having the historically awful year <laughs> and going eight and 22. And he's 17 to 13 and 16 and 14. That Those are like, you know, pretty standard South Carolina baseball SEC records. Uh, and so I, I, I look at it like, you know, I'm not worried. What I'm what I'm thinking about what's going to happen in the coming years, or, 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 or you know, and I know Kingston's recruiting well, and top ten class on paper is there this year. There has been some transfers. There's going to be some attrition. Um, I think they recruit pretty well, you know, as far as talent goes. But 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 what are they looking at? What what's South Carolina looking at? You know, this is a program that the standard is to compete for the SEC championship every year and to compete for Omaha every year. Not, you don't, you don't, you're not going to go every season, obviously. Uh, you're not going to the super regionals every season, you know, but, but the consistency and, 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 you know, when Ray Tanner was, was coaching, people talked about how hard, you know, you, you'd hear a broadcast. It's very hard to do what Ray Tanner's doing, you know, ask LSU. And then people will talk about that. Um, actually, you can ask LSU now. At the time, LSU was pretty good. You, know, you can ask so and so team, Southern Cal, whoever. Uh, that it's just you, you, sometimes you just don't get back. I mean, Tanner himself was six years between trips. Um, but the consistency of the program and the way you could just always count on Carolina baseball being in the hunt that that's you know is it realistic to think that you can get back there? You know, I, I personally think it is. I, I still think South Carolina has one of the very best ballparks in the country. They have great fan support for the sport. Others better, much better than a lot of other schools. There's baseball talent in South Carolina's footprint. Um, and this staff has, you know, gone out in places like Illinois and, you know, Oklahoma and, and, and spots like that, that uh, and, and gotten guys, Florida, Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, you know, so I, I think you can recruit there. And and I think that, you know, the question's going to end up being, you know, because I, I look at it like I think Florida and Vanderbilt are on solid footing and they're probably there to stay. And I think as long as Van Horn's at Arkansas, they're they're there to stay. And, then, and I think you know, Mississippi State's obviously not going anywhere, et cetera. I mean, you can look down and you can see the, these programs are all on solid footing. So where do the Gamecocks fit in? And are we entering a period where, it's just so ridiculously hard in the SEC that's not realistic to expect success every year. And 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 I'm you know quite frankly, how, how is this postseason going to go? Because we really have one postseason to judge Kingston on right now, and it's pretty damn good. It was what four and two, three and zero oh in the regionals, one and two you know, uh, in the supers against Arkansas. So we'll see. We'll see kind of what happens, and we'll find out what path the Gamecocks have to take through the NCAA tournament uh, starting next week. So all that's good stuff. All right, I mentioned recruiting, blah, blah, blah. Let's get to uh, let's get to your, the mailbag questions. How about that? Mailbag. There's two ways to give the mailbag. You could tweet to at the Big Spur Pod. I certainly appreciate all of you doing that and all of you following the Big Spur Pod at the Big Spur Pod on Twitter. Uh, I got 547 followers right now. Would like to see that up a little bit, but uh, we'll get there. So, Dr. Bob had talked about 
how to improve the stadium and game day experience and home field advantage. And, you know, besides winning, obviously, and fan experience. And John uh, had a response, and I wanted to address it right now on Twitter. He said, lower deck, lower ticket prices, particularly in the upper deck. Now, this, this is something I'm in favor of completely. Full stadiums are better than half empty ones. We're outpricing the value of entertainment. Uh, I I agree. And, and here, here's the thing. Through the years, and look, I, I don't think that – I don't necessarily agree with uh, Mike McGee's philosophy on – hey, we need to keep this very, very affordable for the fan base because, you know, at some point, if you're in the Southeastern Conference, you're going to have to pony up and spend, and that includes your fan base. I mean, that's just the bottom line. You need money, you need resources, that kind of thing, to compete in the SEC. TV money is great, but you cannot survive on TV money all alone. I do think this, though, I think there's a way you can achieve – the revenue boost while also, you know, understanding that, you know, the South Carolina fan base and South Carolina football over the years has been number one, very affordable and number two, appealing to families across the state of South Carolina. And you want to do everything you can to keep those folks coming and not price them out. And I think that there are seats in the, I mean, and the folks that you're getting priced, the folks you're pricing out, in my opinion, are the folks that don't really care about where they're sitting. You know, they're the folks that are like, you know, hit me up at 504 West Upper, 304 West Upper, you know, or, or, or 504 East Upper, you know. They're sitting on the upper deck. They come with their family. They love it. They're there every game. They make friends with the people around them. Those are their seats. They're there. And if you're pricing those folks out and, you know, dressing up you know, and you're looking up at the stands and there's the bleachers, that helps your program none. So I do think if there's a way to do it, you can figure out some, some economy packages uh, for some folks, some family packages for some folks and get those tickets sold. More importantly, get uh, butts in the seats. And maybe East Upper. I mean, West Upper, there's a lot of Gamecock Club members in West Upper that prefer West Upper, and they're there all the time. Maybe it's East Upper. Maybe that's what – I don't know. I don't know exactly where the thing is. But you have more revenue coming in now with these club levels and things like that. You know, for the just the average folks that just, you know, go eat a chicken dinner and walk in the game with their family and all that, you know, that, that don't – you know, don't have – the extra to spend and don't quite frankly care about the bells and whistles. They just love the Gamecocks. You know, why not? And I'll be curious to see if other schools start to do this too, because it's not just South Carolina. You see a lot of empty seats at a lot of different places nowadays. Um, maybe not Alabama, but uh, other a lot of places you do. So, uh, and I, and I think that's, you know, I don't know if that's anecdotal or or if it's an issue, if it's a it's a trend in terms of folks being. But I know of people that have been priced out, and they're some of the biggest Gamecock fans you'd ever know. But you know, back when it was you know thirty five bucks a ticket, they could, they could do it. Now it's seventy, and you got to pay a seat license and everything else. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, sort of what happens. And and look, there's a 
there's not, in my opinion, right now for football, a huge seating structure issue at Williams Bryce. Uh, yeah, there's some empty seats in the upper decks, whereas there used to not be. But uh, I don't think there's a big deal there. I think basketball there is, uh, and that's a different subject. So football, you know, I, I don't know. I've been preaching about rearranging the seating at the CLA for years to where, you know, you, you've got a crowd of 9,000 in there that's bigger than most SEC basketball crowds, but the place is half empty, <laughs> that kind of thing. But basketball is a different story. I, I think football, I've always been in favor of, you know, and depending, maybe maybe they've done research and there's just not a market for it, but in favor of bringing back, you know, some some economy seats, you know, like you have the economy seats on the flight, uh, get some economy seats back in the mix for some some folks that, you know, would gladly gladly come to the football games if they if they can afford it, um, and they've just been priced out. So that's good stuff, John. I appreciate that so much. Uh, and that came off Twitter at the Big Spur Pod, and we uh, have an inbox inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com. and. Um, have some new emailers. Eric in Denver emails in Denver, Colorado. Uh, my cousin and her husband used to live out in Denver. Uh, I've visited there a couple of times, really like it. So hope you're doing well out there in Colorado. He says, JC, since we're in a bit of a lull for Gamecock Sports News, and since I value your deep dives on topics, I thought I'd take this chance to ask a couple of big picture questions. First, you've mentioned several times how the culture or environment of the football program trended downward under Muschamp. From what you've heard, can you talk more about how and why it went wrong? Looking forward, what you see Beamer doing different to change things. I think I think this, I think there was, I think a lot of pressure um, and a lot of just kind of like, you know, who Will Muschamp is, just a lot about just football, 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 football. Um, and when you lose, then that becomes the whole thing. And I think the losses piled up and individuals became individuals and that was it. I don't, I don't think Will Muschamp lost control of the program or anything. I've seen that happen <laughs> and that didn't happen. I mean, I, you know, I, I can tell you right now, I mean, you didn't have players getting arrested and quitting and all that. I just, I think the losses piled up. There was no attention to or very little attention to like the players as people during that time. It was just, well, let's just get out there and we're just going to work even harder now. And, you know, when you work hard, but you don't have a, uh, when you don't have a, uh, the reward of winning, then sometimes you're like, well, what am I doing here? So uh, that kind of thing. So um, th- that's the deal there. Uh, you know, I, and I think if, from a cult, if you talk about the culture or environment, and I would say environment, like I said, I don't like to use culture because I, I think the, 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 the culture must have, must have established you know, it wasn't like, you know, you'd look at it with a lot, like with a lot of things Will Muschamp did, you look at it and when the decisions are made, you're like, well, I can see it, you know, or, or I understand why they did that. And he explains things pretty well. 
uh, but then it just didn't work out, you know, and, and, and when that happens too much, you're going to get fired. I mean, as a, co- as a coach, you know, when you make, you make decisions and they don't work out, that's just kind of what happens, you know? And, and I don't, I don't even know that. I mean, people wailed and complained about hiring Kurt Roper. I think most of those people didn't even understand Roper was only at Florida for a year. Uh, you know, some people complained with McClendon got hired, but they weren't complaining when he put up 600 yards at Clemson, you know, um, the people that claim to have a crystal ball about these things normally are just, if you, if you read their, what they post on social media or talk about or whatever, they're very black and white thinkers. And, you know, if Carolina wins, they're going to be happy. If they lose, they're not. And that's fine. You don't have to critically analyze everything. Um, but you know, a lot of the must champ decisions were, you know, things that people that know football and, and majority of folks were willing to give a shot. I mean, so it's not, but you know, when you choose to emphasize certain things in your program and, you know, you, you got a lot of players getting injured and you, you're not winning, that's going to drag morale down. And, and that's just must champ, you know, and, and that happened. I, I think, it's it's sort of an enigma because the same sort of thing happened at Florida in terms of when he left, you know, his players were sad and and and, and they loved him. And it wasn't like a, Hey, we're glad, glad to get rid of that guy. Uh, and then a guy in Jim McElwain that nobody liked came in there and won the East twice. And then he got fired, you know, Shane Beamer, you ask what's he doing different. It's just a different emphasis on, you know, there's a big still an emphasis on hard work. Don't get me wrong, but they're more human. You know, as far as like reaching the guys, and and it's there's a lot of positive reinforcement. Now it's intense. You you watch them practice or work out or whatever. It's intense, but it's it's a different approach and mindset. It's more holistic, I think. Um, and and not just all about football all the time. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of programs out there that can succeed being all about football all the time, but very few. Uh, and I'll tell you what, right up straight right now, the, the other program in the state, uh, in the upstate that's winning really big, that, that's, they don't, they're not, they're not Alabama as far as how they approach things. It's, there's a lot that they do that makes them attractive to elite players because they're not. Alabama. Um, and, and I think South Carolina is going to even be different than Clemson. I, I think it's going to be very unique. And so uh, just unique things, positive reinforcement. Guys have a smile on their face. There's a good energy in the building. Y- you notice after that first wave of people hitting the portal or going pro, and it's basically limited to the defense and the secondary, you haven't had a lot of players leave. Even the guys that aren't playing, even guys like Renricus Davis, who, God, if I were him, I just, I'd probably just change schools just to see if I could stay healthy. But that shows you that the players are loving being part of what's going on. Um, and I don't know that a lot of them love to be a part of what was going on at the end of last year, just because of the losses. So, so that happens. Eric continues. Second, it's far from basketball season, but I'm curious about something. You've mentioned before how Frank Martin and the university do not have a good relationship with AAU programs in the state. Why is this so? Why is it so important? Well, I don't. I don't want it to sound like they don't have a good relationship. 
because that would that would imply that Frank Martin and the coaching staff and USC have 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 kind of tried to shut out the AAU programs or whatever. That's not true. They've been over backwards to try to help. The issue is on that side, and I don't know the reason. Uh, I think that when South Carolina does not win in basketball, it gives them a lot of ammo. I think the you know when you look at the seeding deal at the CLA, that gives them some ammo. Um, and then I think some people in the community, or especially around Columbia, uh, are, are you know want players to leave the area for whatever reason. And they can tell you those reasons. Um, and so I think that's that's the deal there. Uh, Frank's been a guy that you know, Kansas State he didn't have problems with relationships with AAU programs and things like that. I, I just, you know, I I think that while there obviously are players that don't want any part of playing for Frank Martin just because of the toughness and, and all that, uh, and really in some some instances because they want to play defense, they don't want to play defense. Um, but uh, there's no doubt that there are players that 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 just aren't going to – Frank Martin's just not for them, and that's fine. Uh, it's beyond that, I think, with regards to in-state. And uh, I don't know. Frank Martin leaves. Let's say things don't work out and he leaves next year. I'd be – I hope it gets better. You know, I'll be the first one to say I was wrong, but I doubt it's going to get any better. <laughs> Doubtful. Um, you know, people talk about Eddie Fogler and the success he had in state. That was kind of before the rise of AAU and the in, not, not the rise of AAU, but the independence of AAU. The AAU coaches back then were the high school coaches, sort of, in a lot of instances. Now you have other parties involved. It's important because, you know, in basketball, your top recruits all play AAU. Um, and, and, that's kind of where they get showcased because they play against the best and all that good stuff. So it's a great evaluation tool. And uh, the AAU programs have influence over where players go. So, you know, that's, that's why it's, it's just important in college basketball these days. I'll say this, it may start being less important with the transfer portal, that situation uh, in basketball. I'm, you know, as, as, as interesting as the portal has been in football, I still think what you're dealing with in football is a quarterbacks B like three or five guys that can make an impact because they had a coaching change somewhere like at Tennessee when their best players walked out the door uh, at other positions, not quarterback, you know, cause I, I think Henry Toa and however you say it, or Eric Gray and, you know, maybe the big offensive lineman, Wanya Morris, maybe not. Probably so, because Oklahoma could coach offensive linemen pretty well. I think those are all impact guys. I think everybody else, warts, they're you know probably role players, uh, maybe starters at a position where you don't have anybody, uh, that type of thing. Uh, I've just seen it now. Now it may change. We may see it over you know evolve over the years. Now basketball. Yeah, I think you could put together a team in, in an off season, and, and it could end up being pretty good. <laughs> just, you know, I just uh, that's, that's a different sport. So with the portal, you know, maybe maybe this will be Frank Martin's godsend here. You know, as far as recruiting goes, and 
you know, they'll, they'll recruit a handful of guys. And, you know, and look, let's be honest, Frank Martin's at his best when he's got players coming back that have been in his system, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you kind of wonder how you're going to accomplish this if you're transitioning players every year. But, you know, maybe instead of getting guys in the program that end up leaving or that are just long shots to develop, you, you take two or three transfers a year that are like-minded and blend them with the players you're developing. And, you know, that keeps it going. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with basketball. It'll make my head hurt if I dive too much further into it. But uh, Eric goes on to say, your coverage of Gamecock Athletics is a lifeline for those of us outside the Palmetto State. Thanks for all you do. Eric in Denver, thank you for the email. Don't be a stranger. Keep those emails coming. I love them. All right, James. I mean, sorry, Grayson. Sorry, Grayson. Grayson says, I know we were scheduled to play Texas A&M annually, and before they entered the league, it was Arkansas annually with another rotating opponent from the West. Yeah, and before that, for for years, there was a – it was – you you played – two permanent opponents and one rotating opponent from the West. And then they ended that. And I think there were two rotating opponents from the West for a while. Well, yeah. Yeah. Before they expanded to seven team divisions, there was two, two, two rotating and one permanent that didn't line them. So expansion happened and he ended up uh, one rotating, one permanent from the other division. Uh, it was Arkansas. Uh, uh, people blame, you know, they have this, they throw this on the fire of the list of Ray Tanner. Why are you playing AM when you could have played Arkansas? It's really easy to say that now because Arkansas, which was a pain in the Gamecocks' butt for years, uh, uh, even through the good years under Spurrier, the bottom fell out. You know, bottom fell out at Arkansas. Petrino left. They had the year under John L. Smith, which was awful. Then they ended up uh, hiring Brett Bielema. He wasn't a fit. Chad Morris was a disaster. Now they're on Sam Pittman trying to get back. And so obviously during that same time period, A&M, you know, under Kevin Sumlin and, and Jimbo Fisher, have had some pretty good teams and the Gamecocks have failed to beat them. And so obviously you're looking at that and you're like, they're 0 and 7 against A&M and they probably could have been like 6 and 1 against the Hogs the last seven years. Um, Why you got to play A&M every year? Well, here's why. Number one, historically, you know, South Carolina should not look at Texas A&M and go, ah, I'm scared. Because historically, Texas A&M has had some really good teams, never really been great. You know, their fans would probably tell you, like, there's been a lot of WTF years around here, (laughs) Uh, even with all the resources they have. Now, are they heading in the right direction? Absolutely. Absolutely. You got to give them credit. It was impressive last year after they got shellacked by Bama early, how they got up off the – and almost lost to Vandy too, a slow start. Uh, by the time the season was over, they were playing really good football. Probably the best of Jimbo Fisher's tenure there so far. Um, and so it's easy to sit there and go, well, gosh, why did Ray Tanner agree to take an A&M and get an Arkansas? Well, number one, Arkansas wasn't going to be available. Because Arkansas, all right, so Missouri's in the east, but Missouri borders Arkansas. They, you know, they have some, they've had some good basketball games over the years. You know, 
let's create a border rivalry for Missouri and Arkansas and let them play Thanksgiving weekend and try to force this tradition. I don't know how that's worked out <laughs> so far, but I understand the concept. I mean, so, so why not, you know, why not Missouri and Arkansas East West? So that leaves other teams having to, you know, figure out their crossover opponents. Uh, now they could have left a and with Missouri just because they played for the big 12. And I think Missouri would have liked that, but Missouri, Arkansas, that was the, it was the mandate that came down the red line rivalry, I think is what it's called. And so for years, LSU and Florida have been trying to get out of playing each other. They, they back during the orange Barger year, the LSU's always played Florida. It's, it's been an annual game. And when they got the sec, when they, Lee expanded the first time, you know, LSU and Florida are two of the big six. You know, they were going to play Tennessee and Bama because that's a traditional game. They're going to play Auburn and Georgia. And so Florida and LSU were like, well, let's play, you know, and that's good because he kind of had the the big six crossing over and then Ole Miss and Vandy. There's, there's some reason Ole Miss plays Vandy every year. It's like one of the longest running deals. You know, Mississippi State said, oh, take Kentucky. And then uh, Carolina played Arkansas. Well, so Florida and LSU have been trying to get out of play at each other because in the 90s, LSU wasn't that good. <laughs> and so they've been trying to deal with that. And, um, well, uh, here's our chance. So LSU was going to get South Carolina. You know, so the Gamecast were going to play LSU every year, Right. And A&M was going to get Florida, and both teams were like, ah, you know. And so A&M, you know, if you're basing the permanent opponents on historical, you know, who's kind of equal at the time when you made that decision in 2012, A&M and South Carolina made more sense. And the Gamecocks, I mean, there's no way Ray Tanner, Eric Hyman, whoever, we're going to take – we're going to let it be LSU. I mean, that's just – you know, you look at LSU year in and year out. They're big. They're physical. I mean, I don't care how good or not they are. You're going to go to war every time you play them. Um, do you want to? You know, and you're going to add that onto the schedule instead of Arkansas. Now, take your chances with Texas A&M because at the time they're coming from the Big Twelve and we're a six-win type team. So, and really, there's no excuse for South Carolina to not at least have a couple of wins over the Aggies, to be, to be honest with you. Uh, and they've had their chances. You know, last two have been ugly. First one was ugly. The other one's very competitive. So, we'll see. Jay uh, Grayson goes on, though. So, I wanted to explain that before I go to your question. Do you see a scenario where the SEC gets rid of permanent opponents and just goes to two rotating teams per year? I think – I think that's something they may discuss, but look, it's just, uh, you know, and he says, I'm aware of the interdivision games, meaning a lot of the fan base, but Bama and Tennessee hasn't been competitive in 15 years and Auburn, Georgia, only one worth watching that's permanent. Well, Florida and LSU uh, seems silly to keep permanent crossovers to be just for that game. You know, here's the thing. I mean, Auburn's always griping about wanting to go to the East anyway. You know, and so I think, you know, I think number one, Georgia doesn't care. I think Georgia would be fine rotating two teams through. Maybe not. I haven't talked to their administration. But I think most Georgia fans, 
Georgia fans by nature are kind of interested in playing different teams every year. And uh, Georgia Auburn actually, Georgia's one eight of ten or something like that, nine of eleven. I think Tennessee fans would love to take Bama off the schedule. And frankly, I don't know that Bama would care that much right now because I think they're always looking for challenges. I told you Florida and LSU don't like playing each other anyway. They don't like each other, period. So I don't think that would be a problem, you know, and, and I think the other six teams would be fine. Now, Ole Miss may, you know, they may not like that. <laughs> Instead of Vandy, you know, they get to play. But, you know, old, like like it sucks that Ole Miss can't play Tennessee more often than they do. They play this year. But, uh, you know, that's right up, you know, Tennessee borders the state of Mississippi. Um, same with Mississippi State. You know, why can't? You know, Mississippi State and South Carolina play more like they used to. Um, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, what Florida, you know, Florida and Arkansas, really, Florida and all I mean, Florida doesn't get, you know, to roll through the division, the other division like they should. And, you know, Florida and Alabama would play more, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, in my opinion, uh, having two, two rotating would be good. And, uh, probably something they could consider. Now, will that happen? The SEC Southeastern Conference, they they love tradition. I, one thing I do wish they would do, Grayson, is this. Um, instead of having the snake schedule, and I think they had to do it based on adjustments when A&M and Missouri came in, kind of to keep the balance of home and away every year. Um, I don't like the fact that, you know, South Carolina goes and, you know, plays, you know, Alabama at home in 2019, and they don't play them again until 2024, 25, something like that. You know, and it's five, six, it's five or six years, you know, they just kind of pop on and pop off. Whereas it used to be when you had a rotating opponent, I think we had two rotating opponents, or one rotating opponent, you would play like South Carolina in 98, went to Ole Miss. In 99, they played Ole Miss at home. You know, in 2000, I think the cross-division opponent was Alabama, at Alabama, and in 01, the tide came back. You know, and that's what that was with two permanent opponents. Now, you could also go to nine conference games and have two rotating from the other division and uh, keep the permanents. Boy, South Carolina in the years that <laughs> – they had A&M and LSU or A&M and Auburn. No, that would be tough. But, uh, you know, you could also go to non-conference games. So, I, I don't know. But I, I think I think change needs to come just, just for the fact of – we talked earlier about attendance and fan experience. Um, you know, you, you look at the – you know, Carolina historically, and I'm going way back, brings massive road crowds to games. And that's tapered off – the last few years and, and the re, there's reasons why I mean you know the team has, hasn't been as good you know a lot of the same places over and over again I mean how many times can you go stay in Pigeon Forge and head over to Knoxville uh, for a game that you know really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things um, how many times can you go to the Outback Bowl <laughs> that kind of thing um, and so visiting crowds in general have become smaller unless that team's really winning you know uh, it's just, just, you know, but, but what, what I saw in 2018, when the Gamecocks went to Ole Miss for the first time in 10 years, huge crowd, 
Huge bunch of Gamecocks went out for that game just because they hadn't been there in a long time. And that's exciting. Um, and I think the unfamiliarity and then, you know, it, it also robs the student athletes that, you know, there's teams in your conference and unless you make the SEC championship game, you never play them. A multi, you know, three or four recruiting classes may not get to play. You know, so, so that's the thing too. I think it kind of robs the fans and all that. And I do think, I do think we're getting to the point, like I said, Auburn's always griping about how their true rivals are in the East, how well, we, have, we have more in common with Tennessee and Florida than we do with, yeah. And, and what it is, is they're trying to get out of the West, you know, trying to flip divisions um, because it's, they see it as easier. Well, okay, that's fine. You know, let's, let's, let's break off Auburn and UGA and, and you can play Tennessee and Florida more often, you know, let's break apart Tennessee and Bama. You know, and I don't know, I don't know how I'd feel about that, but we're living in an era of college football where, you know, th- there were no issues when Nebraska and Oklahoma suddenly not playing anymore. The, you know, there were no issues with A&M and Texas not playing anymore. So, you know, these aren't fierce in-state rivalries. You know, these are these are these are games that are traditional that they just played. And, and look, I'm not even buying it because Tennessee can't compete with Alabama right now. Because guess what? One day that's going to change. Just like for about ten years, Tennessee steamrolled Bama every year. It'll change back. It'll be competitive again one day. Maybe not anytime soon, but one day. You know, all things kind of come back around. So. Very good stuff, Grayson. Appreciate that. This has been the Inside the Gamecast podcast. I'm J.C. Sherbert. Appreciate you listening. Go to the iTunes, Apple Pod Store, rate us five stars, write a review. Um, Memorial Day weekend, folks. Remember what it's all about, drinking beer and cooking burgers. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Memorial Day is, you know, what it says it is about uh, our troops and those that have given the ultimate sacrifice so we can enjoy our freedom. I will be back next week with loads of stuff to talk about. Lots of about to get really football recruiting heavy and then cover the baseball playoffs. Uh, and then, you know, July 4th will be here before you know it. And then you get into media days and then it's, it's, it's a way we go uh, for the preview in the, the 2021 football season with, with big, uh, big crowds again. I know I'll be happy about that. Hope you and your family have a wonderful weekend. I appreciate you listening, uh, each and every one of you. This has been Inside the Game Guys podcast. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Holla at you soon.